God, we do praise you this morning for being our refuge and our strength, our very present help in times of trouble. Lord, it's such a comfort, especially in these post-Christian days of such darkness and such devilry and, and uh, terrorism and unrest worldwide. It's such a comfort to know that you are a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storms, and a shadow from the heat. We thank you, Father, for the safety and the protection and the comfort, the peace of heart which only you can provide for those of us who have made you our habitation. And Father, I would pray that each one of us this morning um, would indeed have made you our refuge and our sure foundation for life because there is no other Savior other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no foundation, there's no salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, and we pray that this morning we would lift him up, because we know when he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. We, I pray, Lord, that you would clear our hearts and our minds for that which you have prepared for us from your holy word regarding the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner, the herald of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher. May he instruct. May he convict. And may he comfort according to each individual need. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're on lesson number nine, a desert voice in our life of Christ study. Now, in ancient times, it was common for a herald to precede the arrival of a reigning king. Along with a contingent of royal servants, the herald would make sure that the roadways were all smooth and that there were no uh, highway robbers or dangerous animals along the way because the king, of course, was coming behind him. He would remove any large obstacles, rocks, or stones from the road. As the king's servants would travel ahead of him, the herald preparing his way, the herald among them would then proclaim to the people of the land that the king was soon coming and all preparations should be made ready for him so the people could go back to their homes and get their festive clothes on and they could prepare food and just get everything all ready for the coming king. So the royal herald's twofold duty was first of all to prepare his way and secondly to proclaim the coming king and that's what we're going to be looking at in the study of the man and the ministry of John the Baptist, who paved the way, we could say spiritually speaking, he paved the way, he made the way straight for the coming king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, as he went ahead of Christ, he prepared the way, or tried to prepare the way, by removing obstacles from people's hearts, so that they would be ready to receive Jesus Christ when he did appear. Now our outline for this lesson consists of three main divisions. We're going to be looking at the message of royalty. Then we're going to look at the message of repentance and the message of rejoicing. Now, if I was to give you a questionnaire sheet, I think most of you would answer this question correctly, but perhaps if I was in a setting with young children and I asked them, who was the greatest Old Testament person According to the Lord Jesus Christ, who certainly is our final authority, who is the greatest Old Testament person who has who ever lived? And if I ask the children, do you think it was Noah? Do you think it was Enoch, who, you know, walked so closely to God that he was just translated into heaven? Do you think it was Abraham, the father of our faith, 
Uh, what about Jacob or Joseph, who was such a perfect type picture of Jesus Christ? What about Moses? Now, I think there, if I had been asking this question to a, a room full of Jewish people, they would have said, yes, it was Moses. Or maybe King David or King Solomon, because under Solomon's reign, Israel was at her peak in glory. What about Elijah or Isaiah or any of the other prophets that you can think of? Jeremiah, Daniel. I mean, not one bad thing was said about Daniel. Well, the answer is that it was none of the above. According to Jesus Christ, none of those men was the greatest of men. According to Jesus, and this is found in, Ma let's see, where is it? Matthew 11, 11, according to Jesus Christ, the greatest man who ever lived, born of a woman. Now, you notice I didn't include Adam when I was giving the questions. Um, Adam was not born of a woman, so I thought it was better not to put him in there. But according to the Lord Jesus, he said, uh, verily, verily I say unto you, among them that are born of woman, there hath not risen a greater than who? John the Baptist. Now that's kind of strange, especially when we realize that John the Baptist's ministry was only about six months to one year long. That was it. <laughs> and he was beheaded. The Baptist was greater than any of the patriarchs. He was greater than any of the prophets. He was even greater than Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. He was greater than any of Israel's kings. He was greater than any of her judges, like Samuel. He was greater than any of the world's philosophers or military leaders who ever had lived up to his time. Yet, we find as we study his life, which is what we're going to be doing, that John was born into an obscure family, just like the Lord Jesus himself. You know, his father, Zacharias, was just one of many Levitical priests who ministered in the temple. There were 24,000 priests at that time, and he was just one. He was nobody in particularly, you know, nobody in very special. His mother, even though they were godly people, his mother Elizabeth um, was a, a very godly woman, but as far as the world was concerned, she was no one of any great prominence. Neither one of his parents had <clears throat> any particular significant um, significance in the world. You know, if you, if you opened up your World Book Encyclopedia and went to look up Zacharias and Elizabeth, would they be in there? <clears throat> of course they wouldn't. So they didn't have any special place of dignity or recognition in their day and age. Now, we did learn that in obedience to God's call of separation for their son, you know, from God's perspective, everything is different, isn't it? From God's perspective, they were, they were wonderful people. They, they, um, I'm sure they have a special place of honor in heaven. They were obedient because they raised their son, John, in the desert. Now, we don't know when Zacharias and Elizabeth died. We do know that when Elizabeth gave birth to John, they were both elderly. So chances are that they didn't live very long, and perhaps for quite a good amount of his life, John the Baptist lived alone. Maybe his, you know, his parents were gone, and, and he lived alone out there in the desert. And so when you think of Jesus' words that there was none greater, no greater man born among women than John the Baptist, and here we have this fellow, he was an only child with elderly parents who probably passed from the scene early in his life, maybe when he was a teenager in his 20s or whatever, and then he, he just lives totally in the desert and has a very short ministry. What is it that makes this man 
so great according to Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to that question lies not in the man. The answer is not that John himself was the greatest man that had ever lived up to his time. The, the answer to it lies in his mission. It was his mission and his ministry and his message which made him the greatest man who had ever lived up to his time. John the Baptist's greatness was due to his particular calling, his God-given calling. He was the ambassador to who? The Son of God, the King of all kings. He was the one, John was the one who was uniquely privileged to not merely prophesy of the Messiah as Moses and all the prophets in the Old Testament had done, but he was, uh, his, his privilege was to literally announce and introduce the Messiah to the world. And that, of course, is exactly what he did when he pointed his long finger and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was the greatest man, according to Jesus Christ, and his word is final and very authorita authoritative. John was the greatest man because he had the greatest task to perform. He introduced the world to its Savior. And I don't think anybody can deny that that is the greatest task that a mere man can have. All right, let's begin our outline now by looking at the message of royalty. And under this first part of our outline, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the setting for our look at John the Baptist. Then we're going to look at his sustenance. What did he live on? <laughs> And then we're going to talk about his special office. So now we're going to have to do a lot of skipping around in the scripture, going from one gospel to the other. So uh, first of all, we're going to start in Mark 1.1. And I'm not going to necessarily wait for you to get there because we have a time problem here. So I'm going to read to you what Mark 1.1 is. If you want to flip over there, by the time you get there, I'll probably be over in Luke 3. But Mark 1.1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's all it says. It's an introduction to his gospel. And then Luke. Let's go to Luke 3, verses 1 and 2. Luke says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias as the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Okay, um, other than one brief look, one brief look in the book of Mark, we have not even been in the gospel of Mark yet. That one brief look was last time we met when we looked at Mark 6.3, just to learn that Jesus grew up as a carpenter. But other than that, we have not been in the Gospel of Mark, and this is our tenth study so far. It's our ninth lesson, but it took us two weeks to get through lesson number six. So ten times we've met, and this is the first time we're looking in the Gospel of Mark. Now, the, and, and why do you think we haven't been in Mark? Why do you think that Mark did not bother to record for us the genealogical record of the Lord Jesus Christ? He didn't record for us any of the events preceding the birth of Jesus Christ or concerning the birth of Jesus Christ or the post-birth events of Jesus Christ. He didn't tell us about the Magi who came to see him when he was two years old. He didn't tell us anything about the, their escape into Egypt 
and they returned back into Israel and back up to Nazareth. He didn't tell us anything at all about the childhood of the Lord. All of those things were omitted by Mark. Mark essentially starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. Well, the reason for that is because Mark, remember, was divinely inspired to write his gospel account portraying Jesus Christ. I don't know if you can see that, but you had a chart on this. He, was to, he portrayed Jesus Christ as the servant of Jehovah God. And remember how we talked about the fact that if you hire a servant, you're not particularly interested in that servant's genealogy or childhood, birth or childhood or any of the events of his life. What you're really interested in uh, is, can he work? <laughs> can he do his duty? And so it makes sense that uh, now that the servant himself was about to begin his work, the work of his public ministry, that Mark began the, to record the events of his life. And he began with the account of John the Baptist. Now, when we flipped over to Luke chapter 3, we find the actual time of the setting for the Baptist ministry, John's ministry. And of course, he's called a Baptist not because he was of the Baptist denomination. Let me just say that up front, okay? He was not like John the Methodist, John the Baptist. <laughs> there was no Baptist denomination. Why was he called a Baptist? Because he baptized people. Okay, so we got that out of the way. All right, so we find the time of the setting for the Baptist ministry, and when we do this, we consequently know the time for the setting of the Lord's ministry because the Lord's ministry followed right on the heels of John's ministry. And this is given to us, of course, by our historian, Luke. Remember, he writes as a very meticulous historian, and so what he does for us is he pinpoints the time of the Baptist ministry by recording the names of seven historical figures who were living and reigning when John began his preaching. And those figures include for us an emperor, a governor, three tetrarchs, and two high priests. Would you like to close that door, please? Unless that's your child. <laughs> Now, the Holy Spirit's intention in including this information for us through our historian Luke was to demonstrate the fact that the ministry of John the Baptist was a, an event of world significance. This was something very, very important. Of course, the world went on its merry little way, not having a clue about it, but God the Holy Spirit was saying that this was something worldwide important. And when the, the Baptist began to proclaim his message... The 400 years of silence from God to Israel were finally broken. Now you said, well, I thought that silence was broken when the angel Gabriel came and spoke to Zacharias. Well, that's true. The silence, the 400 years of intertestamental silence from the time Malachi finished his book until, until um, the, well, Zacharias spoke to, um, or the angel spoke to Zacharias, that 400 years of silence was ended as far as individuals are concerned when Gabriel spoke to Zacharias and when Gabriel then spoke to Mary and then, you know, Joseph had his dreams, etc. But so far, the 400 years of silence had not been broken to the entire nation, to Israel as a, as a whole nation. And this happens with John the Baptist, who was a God, you know, a God-assigned prophet. He was a prophet. This happens with his message. So really, officially to the nation, John the Baptist broke the 400 years of silence. Now, Tiberius Caesar 
was the reigning emperor of the whole Roman Empire. Actually, by the time John the Baptist began his ministry, Tiberius Caesar, oh, and I have a, a sculpture of him, what, he, what somebody thinks he looked like who, who made that. Um, he was in his 15th year of reigning as emperor over the whole Roman Empire when John began his ministry. Now, Tiberius Caesar was the stepson of Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Augustus, remember, was the Caesar in power over Rome during the time of the Lord's birth. He was the one who initiated the census and got Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Well, now this is his stepson who is reigning, and it's 15 or he's actually in his 15th year of reigning. And Tiberius is described as having been talented, ambitious, cruel, licentious, and inhuman. I thought he sounded like a typical Caesar, didn't he? He had himself exiled, and this was weird, he exiled himself to the Isle of Capri. Picked a good place anyway. I have been to Capri, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous island. But he was so paranoid about being assassinated, and I guess if you were an emperor, you would be pretty paranoid about it too, because they always seem to be assassinated. But he was so paranoid about it that he exiled himself to Capri, and he lived an excessively lustful lifestyle there on the Isle of Capri. But as much as he tried to prevent an assassination, he was eventually assassinated. He was smothered to death in his own bed. So that's Tiberius Caesar. He was in his 15th year of reign when John the Baptist began his ministry. Then Luke also tells us that Pontius Pilate, of course, we've all heard his name. He was the reigning governor of Judea <clears throat> at the time of the Baptist's ministry. And, of course, uh, we all know about Pilate because he's actually the one who officially sends Jesus Christ to crucifixion. He was the successor to Archelaus. Remember, Archelaus was the brutal son of Herod the Great, who for a very short time had ruled Judea after his father. And um, he didn't last too long, something like six to eight years, and then Rome put Pontius Pilate in his place. Remember, Archelaus was reigning when Joseph and Mary returned from Egypt. And Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning, and he thought, I don't want to go and live in, under that man's reign. So that's why he went up to Galilee and lived in Nazareth. Well, Archelaus was replaced by Pontius Pilate. We've also mentioned three tetrarchs who lived at that time in history. And these men were really just vassals of Rome who ruled various areas around Judea. One of these men we've talked about already, his name was Herod Antipas. He was a half-brother of Archelaus, and he was, of course, another son of Herod the Great, and he ruled as Tetrarch over Galilee. So Herod the Great, I mean, Herod uh, Antipas was the Tetrarch ruling over the area where Jesus lived, up in Nazareth of Galilee. He was the man Jesus later called the fox. He's the one who eventually had John the Baptist beheaded. So he wasn't a great guy either. And then another son of Herod the Great was ruling as Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and his name was Philip. And um, then the last tetrarch mentioned by Luke was Lysanias, 
who ruled over the area of Abilene, which was northwest of Damascus, and we know very little. We do know something about Philip, but I'll save that for another lesson. We don't know hardly anything at all about Lysanias, so, uh, except the fact that he was put to death by Mark Anthony, and you've all heard of Mark Anthony. All right, then two high priests were also mentioned by Luke. Now, to have two high priests was not only very unusual, it was uh, probably the first time in Israel's history, but it was also very unscriptural because uh, the scripture said that it, the high priest was to be a singular position. Only one man was to reign as high priest of Israel, and he was to be a descendant of Aaron, and that position was lifetime. He served until he died as high priest. Yet at the time of both John the Baptist's ministry and the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry, Israel had two high priests, and both of them were terrible men. Both of them were very corrupt, unspiritual men. Now, Annas was mentioned first by Luke, and that's probably because he was high priest first, before Caiaphas. He was the high priest of Israel, but... Um, Rome did not particularly care for him. I'm not really sure why. He was very, very wealthy. He obtained his money primarily from um, the temple. You know, it, they, you know when Jesus went in and cleansed the temple on two different occasions because there was so much corruption going on in there and the money changers were making a mint? Well, a lot of that money was going into Annas's pocket. They actually referred to the, uh, the whole money exchange thing and the selling of the sacrificial animals that went on in the temple, they referred to that as Annas's Bazaar. So he was made very wealthy by all this corruption in the temple. But Rome did not care for him at all, and so Rome replaced Annas with his son-in-law. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. However, the Jews continued to see Annas as their high priest. They viewed him as high priest. That makes sense because the Jews knew that the position was for a lifetime. Whether they had a corrupt high priest or not, that was his position until he died. So the Jewish people looked to Annas, not to Caiaphas. And so the man who really had the power was Annas. Um, and he, he was really the one over the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish religious council that ruled Israel under, of course, Rome. But pretty much they had their way in what they wanted. That's why they were able to get Jesus crucified. Rome didn't want to crucify him, but the Sanhedrin did. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 religious men with the high priest as the head, so a total of 71 men. And Annas really had the power over the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas carried the official title as far as the Romans were concerned, but the Jews didn't care because they, they knew that Rome had absolutely no business um, making up making a decision as to who the high priest was. But anyway, there were two high priests. One was looked upon as the high priest by the Jews, the other one by the Romans. So Luke's list of seven names has not only has, um, assisted historians in being able to set the time of John the Baptist's ministry as somewhere between 28 and 29 B.C. That's all. His ministry was only about a year at the most, but some commentators said it's as short as six months. But it's also, Luke's mention of these names has also helped Bible students to understand the political and the spiritual setting, the scene at this 
very critical time for Christian, Christians and Christianity. It was a time when Imperial Rome sat proudly upon her seven hills and ruled the world through the reign of very greedy, lustful, cruel men, emperors. It was a time when Israel herself was divided and ruled by selfish, greedy tetrarchs, and when even Jerusalem was led by a degenerate priesthood, not only a degenerate priesthood, but even a degenerate high priesthood. And it was under these very bleak, spiritually unfavor unfavorable conditions then that the word of the Lord, after 400 years of silence, sounded once again. And it's interesting to notice where the word of the Lord appeared when it did, or when it, when it finally did sound where it sounded. It didn't sound in Rome, did it? When the word of the Lord finally came after 400 years of silence, it did not sound in Rome. In fact, it passed right by the emperor. Tiberius Caesar was not the kind of man that would ever hear a word from God. It didn't even come to the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Neither did it go to any of the tetrarchs who were ruling in Israel. And shocking, most shockingly, it even passed by both of the high priests. Now, if you think after 400 years of silence that God was going to speak, that maybe he would speak to the high priest of Israel, whichever one, <laughs> Annas or Caiaphas. But it, the word of God passed right by them and even the entire Levitical priesthood. Instead of coming to any of those supposedly important men, the word of the Lord, the word of God, came to a man living in seclusion. I mean, a real weirdo as we would see him. If he walked into this church this morning, we would all be a little bit nervous. But it came to a man living in seclusion, a man living in the desert, a man especially prepared by God as a Nazarite, a man filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb to be God's prophet to Israel. Now, the Greek word, if you look at Luke 3, 2, where it says, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias. The word, the Greek word for word there is not the usual Greek word for word that we find in the word, <laughs> which is the word logos. That's not the, this is not the word logos. Logos refers to the word of God, meaning the Bible, the whole word of God, the scripture. That's logos. Here, what we have is the word rima. R-E-M-A, Rima, and it refers to a distinct message from God, a particular word from God, a God-given distinct message came to this unusual man living out in the desert. At the time he received it, he was living in the wilderness. Actually, it said earlier in one of our studies that his parents raised him in the wilderness, so he was a wilderness boy. He grew up in the desert. And that very, I think, very aptly symbolizes the spiritual condition, not only of Israel at that time, but of the whole world. The whole world was living in a spiritual wilderness, a desert, at the time of John the Baptist's ministry. The most important event in history was about to occur. And what was that? The Lord Jesus Christ was about to begin his public ministry. That's the most important event that this world has ever seen. But the world just went on its own blind, sinful way. One strangely dressed, long-haired man, now remember he was a Nazarite, so he never cut his hair, 
burdened with a message from God himself, began to zealously proclaim to anyone who would listen that um, the kingdom of God was at hand and they needed to repent. It's encouraging to note that at a time when things were very, very dark worldwide and seemingly very hopeless, I mean, when you listen to the news, don't you just, I mean, if you didn't know the Bible, wouldn't you just say, there is no answer. There's never going to be peace in this world. I mean, not only is there turmoil in the Middle East, but there's turmoil no matter where you look in the world. And there just doesn't seem to be any answers. Evil men are waxing worse and worse. And you just would say, well, there, it's just absolutely hopeless. There is no, no, no deliverance. But we need to remember that the same thing was essentially going on at the time of the Lord's first coming. The world was about as dark as it could get. It was a total desert, a spiritual wilderness. And uh, even in the holy city of Jer Jerusalem, the, the religious people, the ones who were supposed to know the word of God and uh, the true and living God, they were corrupt and unspiritual. But yet God was preparing for a mighty deliverance. So we need to remember this, especially in the times in which we are living. Sometimes it at, it's at the point when it looks like Satan's agenda is really going to be victorious. You know, when it just looks like there is no way out. That is the very time when Christ may be about to begin the second phase of his redemptive program. You know, he's not through with, with his redemptive program. One day he's going to come back and he's going to undo the curse on this whole world. There will be no more weeds and, and thorns. And <laughs> I mean, he's the whole world is groaning, waiting for that redemption. And of course, we're still waiting for our total redemption. I mean, we might have been redeemed spiritually by being born again, but we still live in decaying bodies, don't we? Fleshly bodies. So maybe because it is getting so dark outside, spiritually speaking, the Lord is getting ready again to uh, come, except this time when he comes, he is not going to come as a meek and gentle lamb, you know, being laid as a baby in a manger, a food trough, and wrapped in swaddling clothes. How is he going to return the second time? As a lion, roaring lion from the a tribe of Judah, king of kings, um, and he is, watch out, he is bringing judgment with him. We'll look at that at the end of our lesson today. He's going to come forth roaring out of the glories of heaven itself. And this time, he's going to crush every foe forever. So we, we need to press on, even though it can get kind of depressing sometimes, can it? It can, really can. But we need to press on regardless of the darkness of the day around us, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the small numbers we have in Bible study. We just keep, need to keep on pressing on. We need to believe that help is going to come just at the very point when we need it the most. Okay, that was um, the setting. Now let's look at the sustenance. And for this, we'll look at Matthew 3, 4. So go back over to Matthew. Well, we haven't been in Matthew, but go to Matthew chapter 3. And let's look at verse 4. It says, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. How many of you have ever eaten fried grasshoppers? Mm. When, when God, after 400 years of closed lips, again spoke to his people, he decided to do it 
outside of Jerusalem. He decided to do it outside of the temple and even outside of the established religious system of that day. John the Baptist, although remember he came from a priestly lineage, both of his parents were descendants of the priesthood. So, you know, he had the right as a son of a priest to wear the priestly garments, you know, the priestly robe, but um, he, separ he had decided, well, according to God's word, he was obedient to, um, to separate himself from the religious center of Judaism and from the religious establishment of his day. He not only lived in the desert, but he, he dressed and he ate and he behaved and he spoke outside of the religious establishment of his day, outside of the religious fashion of his day. Instead of dressing as a priest would dress, how did he dress? What did he wear? Camel's hair clothing, and that would be befitting of an Old Testament prophet such as Elijah. Elijah wore camel's hair clothing. Uh, a robe which was made of camel's hair was rough. It was uncomfortable to wear. It's not something you would want to go around wearing against your skin. It was really similar to wearing sackcloth. So in wearing camel's hair, what he was doing is he was um, uh, symbolizing his mourning, you know, representing God, speaking for God. He was showing that God was mourning over the spiritual status of his people and his, his beloved Israel. Now, as a Nazarite, remember, he is a lifelong, he took a lifelong Nazarite vow. So as a Nazarite, he had vowed to never cut his hair. And some of these pictures, I think I wrote little comments like the hair in the picture isn't long enough. They give him modern hairdos, you know, and have the real short hair. Well, the, whoever drew the picture didn't read the scripture because he never cut his hair in his whole life. So it would be very, very long. I don't know what he did with all that hair, if he braided it in the back or wore it up on his head. Well, he couldn't because he wouldn't have bobby pins, but I don't know what he'd do. <laughs> uh, but he had vowed to never cut his hair, so we can be sure that, you know, according to, to us, he would be a very unusual-looking fellow. Everything about him and his appearance spoke of simplicity. Everything about him spoke of his own self-denial. He was proclaiming to the people, you see, that he had God's message, but he didn't live, dress, uh, eat, look, or talk like the religious leaders of first century Judaism. So the difference between him and, let's say, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, the difference would have been a positive thing for the common people. That would appeal to them because they recognized, they knew the spiritual corruption of their of their leader their religious leaders so uh so his his appearance appealed to the people he looked like elijah you know he looked like an old testament prophet his dress was about as plain and as drab as um the desert in which he lived so it was a camel's hair robe and what was it tied around the middle with a leather uh, belt of some sort leather girdle called it now his diet, according to what we just read, and also over in Mark 1.6, we're told that his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. I guess the desert didn't provide a whole lot of food, but that would be, that would be enough nutrition for him. Of course, he drank water, 
But uh, remember, as a Nazarite, he had vowed never to drink strong drink either. So um, he, he, was, uh, he didn't drink anything alcoholic, and um, he lived on locusts, which are just like grasshoppers. You know, they're insects. I, I hope he cooked them and, and wild honey. Um, his food and his lifestyle served as a rebuke to the self-satisfaction and the self-indulgence of the religious leadership of Israel. His living style was a dramatic and a symbolic reminder to the common people as well as to their leaders of the, the love of pleasures and comforts which were preventing, he, you know, he, the contrast between him and them was telling the people and the leaders that it was their their love for pleasure and their love for comfort and their love for things which was preventing these religious leaders from having a right relationship with God. They were very, especially the Sadducees, and Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, were both Sadducees. We'll talk about the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. I think we do that next time, actually. But um, they had a real love for creature comforts and things. And this was, these were their idols, and they were preventing them from having a right relationship with God. They'd been putting their own love for power. They also loved the preeminence that they got from the people. So their own love for power and pleasure and preeminence and um, prominence was rebuked by John's lifestyle as well as his message, which we'll look at. Okay, let's talk now about his special office. And for this, you've got to go over to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 6 to 17. Very, very wonderful, beautiful verses. John 1, starting at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same, speaking of John, came for a witness. What was his purpose? To be a witness to bear witness of the light, with a capital L, that all men through him might believe. So he was a witness of the light so that all men would come to believe in that light. Verse uh, 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now this, of course, is speaking about who? Jesus Christ is the true light. He even said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Verse 10, it's talking of Christ. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made by him. Who created the world? Jesus Christ, the true light. He created the world. No matter what the world will tell you, Jesus Christ is our creator. He um, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Is that sad or what? They didn't even know him, and he had made them and everything about them. And then this is sad, too. Verse 11, he came unto his own, speaking of his own people, who really should have known him because they had been hearing about him ever since Adam and Eve. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But what's wonderful to see is those two very sad verses are followed by a wonderfully happy verse. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood. In other words, if you believe on Jesus Christ and you're born again, um, you become a son of God. 
And then he tells us in verse 13 that you can't become a son of God or a child of God. You can't be born again of, through blood, of blood. In other words, that's saying you don't become a Christian through heritage just because maybe your parents were Christians. All right, which were born not of blood, not of heritage, nor of the will of man. In other words, there's no works that can get us to heaven to, to, um, to be born again, to be saved. Not by heritage, not by works, nor of the will of man. You can't even will yourself to be saved. It's not of us, is it? Who's it of? But of God. It's totally God's work, God's grace. All right, now this is a fantastic verse because this tells us who the Word was in verse 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we might say, well, who was this Word? Well, verse 14 tells us who the Word was. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is the Word? God who became flesh, Jesus Christ. No doubt about it. Verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I wish we, I mean, we could actually spend a whole lesson just talking about those verses, but we don't have time. If we're going to even take eight years to do the life of Christ, we just don't have time. But I hope you will or have studied them on your own. The true light of whom John the Baptist was called to witness was incarnated in human flesh. And that's what the Apostle John told us so succinctly and so beautifully there in John chapter 1, verse 14. Really what he was telling us is this. <clears throat> the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men can become the sons of God. That's what John 1.14 tells us. For to as many as received him, to them gave he power to what? To become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. How are you born again? How do you become a son of God? Believing on Jesus Christ. It's that simple. So the son of God became the son of man, so the sons of men might become the sons of God. I love that. It was John the Baptist's role, his duty, to witness of the true light, the, the Messiah, the Word incarnate, the eternal God. Now you say, where do you get the eternal God? Where did John say that uh, Jesus was the eternal God? Well, that answer is given in verse 15 that we just read. What did John say? He said that the one who came after him is preferred before him. And then he said, for he was before me. Now, John the Baptist here was saying that even though Jesus was born into this world six months after him, do you remember that? John the Baptist was only six months older than Jesus in the flesh. And John was saying, even though he came after me, yet, what? He was before me. Now, how could that be? It says in, in Micah 5, 2, he is from everlasting. He is eternal God, and John testified to that. So John was both the herald and the witness of the Lord. He was also the fulfillment, remember, now we looked at this a few lessons back. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah 
40, verses 3 to 5, where it says, you know, there would be a voice crying in the wilderness, you know, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord. We talked about that. I think it was back in lesson number 5. So he's a fulfillment of that prophecy, and he's also the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, which said, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare my way before me. And we talked about the fact that God was speaking there. So this is another verse, Malachi 3.1, that testifies to the deity of Jesus Christ, because he was God, had said the Lord of hosts, but he said he'd prepare the way before me. So Jesus Christ is God. All right, so John the Baptist is fulfillment of Scripture. God predicted that there would be a forerunner for his son, for his, his, the Messiah of the world. His mission, besides introducing Israel to her long-awaited Messiah, was to prepare men and women to welcome him by having their hearts ready, you know, their hearts prepared, get rid of all the obstacles in their hearts. He wanted to get their hearts submissive and repentant so that they would receive Christ when he did arrive. So let's look now at the message of repentance. And for this, let's see, where are we? We're in John. Now we need to move over to, well, let's look at Luke since it's the closest. Let's look at Luke 3. Luke 3. And we'll look at verses 3 to 6. It says, and this is talking about John the Baptist, and he came into all the country about Jordan, that's speaking of the Jordan River, preaching the baptism of repentance for, which really means with a view to the remission of sins, if you could write that, or unto the remission of sins is what that little word for actually literally means. All right, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, now this is, you know, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. Okay, now quickly, if you'd go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 3, 1 to 6. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Or Isaiah. Again, the same quote, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdler about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then, let's see, am I supposed to read verse 5? Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. Okay. Uh, you can just stay there in Matthew. We've taken a look at the twofold duty of the messenger. So next what we want to look at is his twofold message. What was it that John actually declared to the people of Israel? What was his rema or his word, his his distinct message, divine message that he had received from God while he was out in the wilderness? Well, basically his message was twofold and it's summarized for us in Matthew 3:2. That's why I wanted you to stay in Matthew. Look at 3:2. 
His message consists of two um, aspects. First of all, he said, repent. Repent ye. That's the first aspect. His first aspect dealt with repentance. The second aspect of his message dealt with rejoicing because he was telling Israel that her kingdom was at hand. What does at hand mean? The kingdom of heaven was at the very door. You know, it, 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 she could rejoice because the king was about to come and she could have her kingdom. Of course, she didn't get her kingdom. Why? Because she rejected her king. All right, so let's look at the first part of his message. Before we look at the rejoicing part about the kingdom, let's look at the first part where he says, Repent ye. <clears throat> now, the word repent means to change one's mind or one's attitude about something. John was calling upon the people of Israel to change their minds about several matters. First of all, and of primary importance, they were to change their minds about their sin. The Jewish people, and particularly their spiritual leaders, had a gross misunderstanding, a gross misconception of sin. However, um, this, this misconception was something that, that Jesus will notice as we go through his life. This is the one thing he's always pointing out to them, that they had the wrong idea about sin. This, in, in fact, this is... Um, this is this is where he gets the ugliest when he's talking to the religious leaders, you know. He, re he really has it out for them because they just don't understand that they're sinners. Have you ever met anybody who doesn't know that they're a sinner? They're few and far between, but I've actually met some people who have told me that they have never sinned in their whole life. And it, <laughs> the, the thing that always strikes me is that that's so proud that that's a sin right there. That they think that, you know, they've never sinned. That's pride. Wow. Um, Israel's religious rulers thought of sin as something totally external. In other words, just their outward actions. You know, this is what you'll get from people. Well, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've always obeyed the Ten Commandments, which they probably haven't. <laughs> um, but they think it's something totally external, what they do, you know, in effect with their hands or their feet or their mouth. But the Lord Jesus taught that it, sin is something where? Internal. Sin originates not here with what I do. Sin originates in the heart. It originates really in my mind. As a man thinketh, so is he. Sin is really a matter of attitude. It's, an atti it's our attitude of inner rebellion toward God and toward his holy standards of righteousness. I mean, even as Christians, sometimes we don't like it when people point out how holy his standards are. We're always trying to, to justify and to, to bring those standards down to our level, level where we feel comfortable. So it's the inner sin of the heart which eventually expresses itself outwardly in a person's words and in a person's actions but it originates sin originates internally Israel's spiritual leaders didn't see sin as a heart condition at all they were merely concerned with their outward behavior and their outward show of of piety they were concerned of course mostly with their reputations before one another and before the multitudes so John's God-given message to the nation was aimed at getting both the common people and their Jewish religious leaders to change their mind, change their attitude about their sin. 
His message also implied that Israel needed to change her attitude about her form of Judaism because they had made Judaism very shallow and very hypocritical. Judaism at the time of Christ had become nothing more than an outward ritual void of, uh, of any inner reality. It was just all ceremony and all outward ritual with very little heart reality. I mean, there was a remnant, as we know, but most people were just going through the motions. The vast majority of Israel expected a very different message. You know, after all those years, of 400 years of silence, when they finally did hear from God, they were expecting a completely different message than what they heard from John and what they also heard from the Lord Jesus. They expected the kingdom at hand part of the message. Yes, they expected that because they were looking for their Messiah to come and to restore Israel to the former glory that she had had under King David and under King Solomon. You know, they were expecting him to come and establish a kingdom there on earth for them. But they didn't, you know, they... they they expected the kingdom at hand part of the message, but they did not anticipate the repentance part of the message. They were looking for a Messiah prince who would defeat all of their oppressors, you know, Rome, get rid of Tiberius Caesar, get, get rid of Pontius Pilate, get rid of Herod Antipas, and Archelaus, well, he was already gone, but uh, Philip and Lysanias and all those guys, get rid of them and let them rule their own country again. They were not really interested in a prophet who would come along to rebuke them of their own sins. What they wanted to do is pick up arms and conquer their enemies. They didn't want to take up arms and conquer their own passions. No. They wanted a position among the nations, but they didn't care about purity before the nations. Their concept of a kingdom was solely temporal. In other words, they just were looking for a kingdom on earth. They had no desire to be told to repent when what they really had their hearts set on doing was to revolt. They didn't want to repent. They wanted to revolt. Revolution you see, if they could rise up with a, a great leader and rise up against Rome, that would appeal to their flesh, right? But repentance is a spiritual matter having to do with the soul. And that just was not the emphasis which appealed and interested the majority of the Jewish people at the time of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word repent is a very good biblical world, word, but it has oftentimes been misunderstood. Many people, based on their misunderstanding of the word repent, will teach that, that uh, an individual has to cease, has to stop sinning in order to be saved. And that is a tragic, tragic misunderstanding of the word repent because can anyone totally stop from sinning in order to be saved? I mean, that is impossible. If, if, th that's, if it was possible, there would have been no need for Jesus Christ to come to earth and go to the cross for us if we could somehow or another manage to stop sinning. So that's a total misunderstanding of the, of the word repent to cease from sinning. It's uh, futile to ever tell anybody that. 
Oh, furthermore, that, that understanding of the word repentance is not taught anywhere in the Holy Scripture. That's just something men have made up. It has to be understood, that, and this is going to seem like I'm um, contradicting myself here. We do have to understand that repentance is a prerequisite for salvation. Now, in saying that, I am speaking about the biblical definition for repentance. The biblical meaning... The meaning that is taught in the scripture for repentance refers to a change of mind or a change of attitude about sin. So an individual must change his attitude toward God, understand who God is. He must change his attitude toward Jesus Christ and understand who Jesus Christ is as Lord and Savior. And he must change his attitude, change his mind about himself. He must see himself as a lost sinner, you know, in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. So in other words, before a person can truly become saved, he or she must repent of any self-righteousness, must see himself or herself as a helpless, hopeless sinner apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So repentance, you see, is a condition for salvation, but only when repentance is interpreted biblically as a change of attitude toward sin, toward oneself as a sinner, toward God and toward his Savior, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, so much of the gospel that is being preached out there in the world is just, you know, believe on Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, and there's no talk about repentance. And that's why you see so many people who seemingly got saved, and they're not really saved, because they never changed their mind about their own sinfulness and their, their own attitude about God or Jesus Christ. And so they're not really saved. You can't just believe on Jesus and be saved without repenting. You have to change your m mind about yourself. You have to know you're a sinner and that you're hopeless apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So biblical repentance was the first aspect of John's message. This, this repentance, if genuine, was then to be followed by baptism. John was essentially preaching this message. Here's what he was in effect saying. Repent by changing your mind, changing your attitude about your sin, and then give public evidence of your changed mind, your changed attitude, your changed heart about yourself and your sinful condition by being baptized. That was John's message. Now don't get that confused with our baptism today. It's a different baptism, but we'll talk about that. So let's talk, first of all, there were three types of baptism. There was, um, and John's baptism was not the first baptism that there was related to the um, Judeo-Christian faith. The Jews were very well acquainted with the rite, R-I-T-E, of baptism because a Gentile, any Gentile who had ever become a proselyte to Judaism, let's say there was a, a Gentile out there in the world and he, he came to believe in the God of uh, Israel, who is, of course, the one and true living God, Jehovah God. And he came, like Ruth, for example, wanted to believe in um, the God of Naomi, the true God. Well, that Gentile, if he was a man, had to be circumcised. And then he had to be baptized. It was called proselyte baptism. And then after his baptism, and it was an immersion into the, into the waters of baptism, 
that baptism was then followed by a sacrifice. They would take a sacrifice to the, um, to the altar. And that is how a, a Gentile converted to Judaism, to his belief in the true God and to the true promised coming Messiah. However, John's baptism was not proselyte baptism. John's baptism is really summarized for us when we read Luke 3.3, 3, where it says that it was the baptism of repentance for or unto the remission of sins. John's baptism is what you could call, if you want to write this down, baptism, a baptism of repentance. When a person, whether he was Jewish or Gentile, came to John to be baptized, he was confessing, that person was confessing publicly that he or she understood that he was a sinner. So John's type of baptism, and we're going to see this next, next, not next week. Now next week we don't come because we have our Thanksgiving break, but the week after when we have our Christmas dinner, uh, we're going to talk, we're, we are going to have a lesson that day. We're going to talk about how John's message caused quite an angry stir among the religious leaders. I mean, they were... They were not only appalled at the thought of confessing themselves as sinners, you know, publicly confess myself as a sinner, but they were appalled at the, at the idea of subjecting themselves to water baptism. In their minds, you see, baptism was only for the Gentiles, and they held the Gentiles in low esteem, you know, even putting them on a level with, with dogs, um, even when those Gentiles converted to Judaism they didn't really think much of them. So we're going to look at that next time. Not only was John's baptism for the confession of sins, but it was also, it says, for the remission of sins. And that does not mean that when they were baptized, they, their sins were forgiven. Because, as I told you, um, it really should read for or unto the remission of sins. That means that it was a baptism, John's baptism was a baptism which looked ahead to or with a view to the yet future remission of their sins, which would occur when? When Jesus Christ, the Messiah, actually came and atoned for their sins, when he died on the cross and then died in their place so their sins could be forgiven. So John's being baptized by John did not a cleanse. Understand this, please. It did not cleanse a person from their sins, nor did it free that person from their bondage to sins. It was not a purification from sin. It was really just a, um, it was a preparation baptism for the coming of the Messiah who would deal with the matter of forgiveness. So we need to understand that John's baptism was really an incomplete baptism. There is no such thing as John's baptism today. It's, it's out of the picture. There's no such thing as proselyte baptism, and there's no such thing as um, a baptism of repentance such as this. The only baptism there is nowadays is believer's baptism. You know, after a person is saved and he gives public testimony to the fact that he has identified himself with Jesus Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. You know, going under the waters symbolizes the death. Coming up out symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a public testimony, the fact that you have already been saved. That's why infant bapt baptism is not biblical. Because a child, a baby, I was dunked three times as a baby. I don't even remember it, but I wasn't saved. I didn't even know they were doing it. I don't remember it at all. 
It's not biblical. Um, a person is not to be baptized until after they have been saved. Baptism doesn't save anybody. It just gets them wet. <laughs> All right. So it was a preparation baptism. And we see this in the book of Acts. Actually, Paul, the apostle Paul, uh, came across some people in Ephesus, some men who had been baptized unto John's baptism. And Paul told them that they needed to be rebaptized after they put their faith in Jesus Christ. They heard about Christ and they accepted him, but they hadn't been baptized with believer's baptism, so Paul told them they needed to be rebaptized. You know, have you ever heard of the Anabaptists in history? Many, many of them were um, martyred. But the Anabaptists, that just means re-baptize. They came along and said infant baptism is wrong. A person, and so all those little babies, you know, that, that grew up and then believed on Jesus Christ were re-baptized. And that's where they got the name Anabaptists. I was re-baptized uh, when I was an adult after I did accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was baptized with my husband and my mother. It was a wonderful special day for us. But... Um, that's believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is the only baptism today, other than the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk about in a minute. That's when, when, you, are, when you are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit immediately. It's not a water baptism, all right? Let's talk, last of all, about the baptism of rejoicing. And for this, let's see, where are we? We're in Matthew, so let's look at verses 11 and 12. Skip down to verses 11 and 12. Where it says, I indeed baptize you with water. This is John speaking, John the Baptist. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with who? The Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, if you can flip real quickly to Luke 3. Let's look at verses 15 to 18. Luke 3, 15 to 18. It says, this is when John is out there baptizing. It says in verse 15, And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, a latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the, with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Verse 18, and many other things. In his exhortation preached he, John, unto the people. The second aspect of John's message was that of rejoicing because the kingdom which had been promised to Israel for centuries by all of the Old Testament prophets was at hand. In other words, it was at the very door. I should have had that picture up there already. Sorry about that. It's significant really to notice that Matthew is the only one who pointed out the second aspect of John's ministry. Mark and Luke recorded John's words, repent. But only Matthew told us the second part of that message, which is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's interesting. Why would Matthew be the only gospel writer to record that particular text, do you think? Well, it's because he wrote, remember, with Jewish readers 
in mind. Matthew wrote primarily, originally, with, to Jewish readers. And at the time he wrote his gospel, Jesus, of course, had already lived and died and been resurrected. So the Jews reading Matthew's gospel would ask the question, if Jesus was the Messiah, as you say, Matthew, then why hasn't the kingdom come? Now, the Romans and the Greeks and the others, they wouldn't ask that question, but the Jews would. And so what Matthew was doing was reminding them of John's message, that the kingdom had been offered to them. John had said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, the, the kingdom had been offered, and the reason they didn't have the kingdom, as we said earlier, was because they rejected the king. And you can't have the kingdom without the king. The kingdom would come. It's just been postponed. They will one day have a king. We will, all of us, have kingdom here, literally, on earth for how many years? One thousand years. There will be a literal kingdom on earth, and then we will go into the eternal kingdom forever, ever. Well, speaking on John's message concerning the kingdom, Mr. Butler makes the, uh, the following comment. You don't have this in your notes, but I just wanted to read it. He says, basically, it teaches that there is a kingdom of another source. Now, remember this when things look bad. This isn't all there is. There is another kingdom of another source, another composition, and another character than the kingdoms of this world. A truth which ought to be welcome to those weary of the kingdoms of this world. Do you get weary of the kingdoms of this world and their kings? I do. Being of heaven... It will involve more than the flesh and material. It will involve the soul and eternity. The sovereign will not be man, but God, namely Jesus Christ, whom John is heralding. To be part of this kingdom is a choice blessing indeed. But since the kingdom is heavenly in character, it is also holy in character, which means that you cannot enter the kingdom apart from holiness. Thus, the need to repent of one's sin. I thought that was just a, a very well-worded quote there by Mr. Butler. So John's message was not only one of an urgent need for repentance by the entire nation, but it was also a message which called for rejoicing. It tells us in Luke 3:15, was it, that the people were in expectation. Do you see that little phrase? The people were in expectation. They understood that John was a, a, a God-sent prophet. This is talking about the common people the ones with open hearts to hear. They understood that John's message, that John was a prophet of God and that his message was a messianic message. In fact, some of them even began to wonder if John himself wasn't perhaps the Messiah. But true to his humble character, one thing you can say about John the Baptist, I mean, he could have been puffed up because he's the greatest man who had the greatest message that ever had been up to his time. He could have had quite an ego, but true to his humility, what did he answer the people? He knew, he knew his position. He said, of course he wasn't the Messiah. He was merely his herald. In fact, he even told the people that he was not even worthy to bend over and undo the latchet of his sandal. And that was the, the, the task of the lowliest servant of all. You know, remember Jesus did something very similar when he girded himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. That was a duty 
reserved only for the, the low man on the totem pole with the servants. So John was so much like his Lord and Master. I, I love the saying where John said, I think it's in uh, chapter 3, verse 30 of John, not John. Yeah, John. John, the Baptist in John 3.30 said, He must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, this man really understood dying to self. He understood his mission was to point to his Savior. Whoops. <laughs> and that's our mission too, right? Our mission is to point to our Savior. We should decrease and make sure that, we, that he increases. You know, he's a jealous God, and we should never, ever take his glory, try to take his glory from him. And that was the problem with the religious leaders. They wanted the glory for themselves. Well, I'm not going to have time to talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's in your notes um, his, his, uh, when he talked about um, that he, would ba he baptized with water, but the one coming behind him would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That, of course, is how we are saved when we accept Jesus Christ, when we repent of our sins, change our mind about our own sinful condition, and uh, understand that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior who died in our place as our Savior. Um, and we ask him to come into our heart, and we are saved. We instantly receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It isn't something that we have to pray about and later receive. It happens instantly. We are given the Holy Spirit as our resident teacher and guide, and we are, we are saved. And, and uh, it's wonderful and it's glorious, and we are the ones who are like the chaff. I mean, not the chaff. We are like the good grain that falls to the floor. You know, when, the, when they would um, do the winnowing, on the threshing floor, they take like a pitchfork and, and throw the grain up into the air. And the chaff, the wind would come a, a, along and blow the chaff away. And it, later it would be gathered and burned. But the good grain was heavy and the wind didn't blow it away. It fell to the bottom of the threshing floor and it was gathered together and barned. And see, if you're born again, you're the, you're the good grain that Jesus Christ will one day when he returns and he does the separation, he's going to gather those who are truly born again together and barn them forever. They'll be secure. The, the, the unbelievers will be blown away and eventually burned in the eternal lake of fire. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, would you rather be barned or burned? <laughs> I'd rather be barned any day. All right. Thank you for your patience. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, there's just so much. I know we, don't, we didn't have the time to discuss it, but there's so much we could learn from John the Baptist's example to us. Um, much that we could learn about how, what you consider as true greatness is what we need to, to listen to and, and see from his life. There were a lot of things about John which made him great in your sight. So I would pray that we would consider what those things were and then strive to accomplish them in our own lives. We know that he was filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit, and so that's important. Apart from, from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing in your service for you or in your service. So may we examine our hearts and make certain that we truly have, each of us, repented, that we have changed our mind about our lost condition and know that we are indeed sinners in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we, each and every one of us, Lord, have invited him or will invite him, if we never have, to be the Lord of our mind, heart, soul, strength, and will. And we know, Father, also that John was obedient. He was so obedient to your word, and he followed your will for his life and not his own will.
I'm sure he would have enjoyed creature comfort, comforts and, and all that this world can offer us, but uh, he put your will above his own, and he had a very self-controlled lifestyle. He truly died to self. He was temperate, and he was willing to deny the luxuries of life in order to serve you unhindered. So, Lord, may we each learn to have self-control over habits in our lives which, which demonstrate a lower commitment, a lower commitment level to you. May we also learn the humility that John the Baptist had to teach us because he understood that he was to announce the king and not to act kingly himself. Um, and Lord, may each of us take as a life verse where it's where um, it said about John that Christ might increase and that we might decrease. Teach us how to die to self each and every day so that we might live a resurrected life in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the patience of your people. I pray, Lord, that they will all have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving um, holiday and that we truly will, each and every day of our lives, give thanks to you who have who has blessed us so abundantly. Lord, we love you, and I pray now that you go with us and bring us back safely in two weeks. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.